Some of you were disappointed this morning not to see Pastor King or Pastor Robbins. Uh, We had a quick change there in the lineup recently based on uh, a raging fever going through the King household. He was, Pastor King was due to preach this morning, and so some of you had looked at a bulletin a a few minutes before and thought you knew what was going to happen, and and it's different, and it's also different for me. And so um, this past week, I'll I'll share with you, I've had the privilege of uh, going to uh, Orlando, uh, not to Disney World, uh, not even to the Reformed Mecca of Legionnaire Ministries, but to Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And I had the privilege of, of studying with uh, one of the, the leading Reformed scholars on uh, the, the person, the works of Augustine, St. Augustine. And in particular, we were doing a study of his, most, his second most famous work, The City of God, Confessions being the, probably the most important and most well-known uh, writing of Augustine. If you haven't read that, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a, a, an original kind of work, and it's in its context, uh, deeply moving in many ways. And it's actually, in some ways, a companion uh, I learned to The City of God. And for those of you who don't know, The City of God by Augustine is an apologetic work. It is written, or it is beginning to be written, at the time in which Rome has just fallen to the, the Goths, the barbarians who have uh, overtaken the city under the, the leadership of Alaric. They've, they've come in, they've, they've sieged the city, and after a number of days, they've been able to break through, and they're essentially given license to come through and to pillage. They have a, a three-day kind of ability to come in and do whatever they want. Some parts of the cities would, would, the city would have remained untouched. Other parts would have been completely devastated and horrible things happened to those who were in it. And the, re, the response was uh, among a multitude because the kingdom at that point, the, the Roman Empire at that point had been Christianized. It had become, in a sense, Christendom since Augustine in the 300s or since uh, Constantine in the 300s um, had been converted and had, had manifest that into the kingdom. There was a series of back and forth between uh, leaders who were more or less Christian. One of the more recent was a man named Theodosius who, who demonstrated a great deal of godliness in the way that he ruled and had, had instituted a number of things that, that made it more fr- uh, a more favorable environment uh, for Christians. But eventually his, his end came to a reign. The, the empire was already beginning to show signs of decline uh, at that time. And when the, the Goths came in to attack, it finally gave an occasion for the holder honors, for those who still had the pagan mindset to say, see, this is what happens when you embrace a weak religion like Christianity. This is what you get. It's the downfall of the Roman Empire. And so Augustine is writing as a response to that. He begins not one book, but a series of books. turns out that the city of God is 22 different books uh, speaking to this. And and a great deal of it is apologetic, and another part of it is is biblical theology. And the apologetic part, he is responding to Rome uh, and to to those who wanted the old Rome and the old Roman gods. And he is telling them, you don't understand what you had. He's telling them that those who want the old Roman pantheon want gods who are deeply flawed. And they want a city that is deeply flawed. It is deeply disordered on a number of levels. There are so many things that are wrong with it. If they really understood what they were trying to go back to, they would understand how it ultimately is going to end in the worst possible outcome. Rome has always been deeply flawed. Despite whatever glories she had, there is a much better city. And that city that they ought to long for is the city of God. And so why do I bring that work up? Well, in the course of that work, Augustine talks about a theme. He talks about disordered loves. 
And the problem he points out with Rome is not that Rome did not love passionately or even sacrificially. She did those things. But in doing those things, she was loving the wrong object. Her loves were disordered both as individuals and as a whole people. And Augustine in his work is patiently and winsomely and convincingly pointing them that there is only one safe love. And that is to love the Lord God. To love him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that love, to be able to rightly love others. This morning I want us to look at the Apostle Paul and listen to the Apostle Paul more than Augustine. Although I do want to come back to Augustine later. But listen to the Apostle Paul as he speaks to us about love. Romans 12 is a love chapter, every bit as much as Romans 13 is. And if, if you happen to attend the, the wedding of my daughter, Avery, you would have heard a homily that reflected on these themes. And this is a further reflection on those themes. One of the things that we understand since the fall is that, that falling in love has been easy is that it's natural for us to fall in love with a number of different things. Not only do we fall in love the way that middle school girls fall in love, but we also fall in love with tools and technology. We fall in love with fashion and features. We fall in love with with comfort and escape. We fall in love with power and privilege. Those are things that that no one has to convince you to want those things. When when you get a taste of them, you get exposure to them, your heart is inclined to be drawn to them. We love to be seen and to be noticed. We love to be thought well of. We, we love to be appreciated. We love to be left alone. We love to be unencumbered. We love to be free of responsibility. We love food and entertainment and connectivity. These are things that, that we easily fall in love with. But conversely, that's falling in love is easily, but loving after the fall is very difficult. It's hard on this side of, of, of the garden, east of Eden, when, when, when sin has entered into the picture, when we attempt to love in right ways according to what God says, it becomes incredibly difficult. And the Apostle Paul recognizes that. And so in Romans 12 and in Romans 13, there's another passage we'll pick up there. The Apostle Paul teaches us about a number of different loves buried in this text. I'm not going to go into all of those, but he teaches us about the love of your brother. He teaches about the love of neighbor. He teaches about the love of the stranger. He teaches about the love of enemy. And, of course, he teaches about the love of God. And in a certain way, he will even point us back to the love of self and how to understand that. This morning, I want to look again at Romans 12, 1 and 2, the passage Pastor Dodd read just a few moments ago, and and get to it because it helps us to open the way to this latter part of the book of Romans, the practical part. If you don't know the, the, the book of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, it is very heavy theology. It is, it is meant to explain critical things about the, the relationship of people to God. And, and, and the problem from the outside in terms of the problem of sin, but the way that problem is overcome by justification, by faith alone in Christ alone. And so over those previous 11 chapters, Paul is going to talk about the, univer- the universality, the weight of sin, that it's a, it's a problem that plagues every person, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. The problem comes to your front door the, the moment you, that you come into this world. About chapter 5, he's going to talk about justification by faith alone. He's going to point them to Christ and say, this is the only thing that can make you right, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. No one has anything to cling to and to hold on to that can fix what's wrong with them other than Christ. He will talk in 7 and 8 about the ongoing struggle with sin, chapter 6 as well. He's going to talk about the victory and the freedom that's found in deliverance with Christ. And he's going to talk about how 
two different peoples can be drawn together. Jews and Gentiles. And that's probably something we don't think of enough when we think about what's going on in the book of Romans. Is that Paul is, is writing to the church in Rome, but he's writing to two distinct people groups. To, to Jews and to Gentiles. And this is a massive undertaking to try and bring them together. Because they are, they are separated on so many different fronts. They, of course, have language barriers. They have ethnic distinctions. There's a variation in the kind of clothes that they would wear. There are different, of course, religious backgrounds and the kind of worship that they're, they're accustomed to. Their dietary codes are different. And then certainly their law code is radically distinct from one another. They had every reason to misunderstand each other, every reason to be made uncomfortable in trying to come together and to, 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 to approach God in the same way. But Paul is going to teach them there's a reason that they can embrace each other, and it's because of their embracing of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's making that case, that argument that there is union that can be had beginning with Christ, but he also knows that It's not enough just to tell you that. It's not enough just to believe that. He knows that they're children. And children need to be taught. It's not enough to just be in a family. You're born into it. You you as parents know that that if you have more than one child, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be misunderstanding. And just because they share the same last name doesn't mean everyone's going to get along. You have work to do. And so Paul is doing that work. He's, he's recognizing the children that are before him in this church, these new believers, and he's attempting to draw them together by teaching them how to love one another. So as we come to Romans chapter 12, we begin to understand what it is to love Christ and because of your love for Christ to be able to love others. Let's again, verses 1 and 2, Romans 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He begins by beseeching, which is another way of saying he's begging them. He's saying, please listen to me. Why? By the mercies of God, because of the loving and atoning work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, because of the great work that's been done for you. What? That you would present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's saying that that what you are to be oriented towards now, how you are to think about yourself in relation to the rest of the world and to God is that you have become the sacrifice, the whole burnt offering, the the offering that belongs completely to God, that there's there's no part of you that gets to be outside the the realm of giving yourself over to God. This is what is the, the new nature that you take on when you become a disciple of Christ, is you've been bought and you've been paid for, and you are being offered. What does he say of this? He says, It is your reasonable or your rational service. One commentator I read explained it this way. He said, it is eminently reasonable, both intellectually and spiritually, for believers in Jesus, because they experience the mercies of God, to dedicate themselves wholly to God. In fact, this is your proper act of worship as rational people. What he's saying is, how could you think that your duty would be anything less than to give yourself wholly, completely, totally over to God. What does that look like? Well, he tells you, it says, it means that you will not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The transformation of your person is going to result in this radical change in every part of you and how you interact with the world. It can't go unchanged because of what Christ has done. And if it goes unchanged, if On the other side of a profession of faith in Christ, if you are not changed, 
then that profession is not grounded in reality. It's not faith in Christ because Christ won't leave you unchanged. Now, this is, of course, going to be vitally important for people of Rome because, as Augustine would tell us 400 years later, that the Romans had a particular way of thinking. They were involved in, in this terrible psychological problem. It's, it's called the, the, the libido dominandi, the lust for power. And it manifested itself in sort of every part of how they thought about themselves as Romans. And this was, this was going on in the first century whenever Paul is writing. It's going on in the fourth and fifth century whenever Augustine is writing. Rome loved to crush its enemies, to subjugate, to, expre- to, to oppress them. Rome loved taking advantage of its relationships with other states for its benefit. They, 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 they used and manipulated the power base that they had for their own benefit. If you looked within the city, the way that they treated slaves, it was completely dehumanizing. They were used to gratify lust on a number of fronts, and they, they were treated so much like cattle. Rome used its relationships at home even as well. How a, a man would think about his, his wife and his children is that they were features, they were tools for status. They, they, they were security for him <clears throat> relationally in the culture. It had nothing to do with the obligations of love that are in their Christian family. And what's fascinating is that Rome even used its gods in exactly the same way. The gods were for entertainment, and they were also for exploitation. The reason that they had so many gods is that they had a god that served them in all of these different categories. There'd be one, one god for the rain, and another god for the... The, the seed to germinate, another God for the, for the fruit that would come up out of the ground. There would be a, another God that would give them victory in battle. There would be another God that, that would give them a, um, a success in, in their work. And it, and it just went on and on. Augustine points out that, that, that there was something incredibly obscene about the number of gods they had. Because it said, he, he spoke of the number of gods that were present in the bedroom on the wedding night. It was over a half dozen, maybe even a dozen. Everyone having a role to play. It says that they, these gods were, were not gods that they revered in their honor. That they, they were gods that they used and exploited for their own purposes. Romans were not an affectionless people, but they, what they had affection for was wrong. They loved bad things alongside good things, and they frequently loved them in the wrong ways. And that lust for power, you know what sin does. It becomes being overpowered by lust. That which Paul speaks to, if you go back a few chapters, turn with me back to Romans chapter 6. Paul writes in Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Christ's death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's how we think about our relationship to sin. That This thing that we, we find so much pleasure in doing is something that, that outside, outside of Christ and his freeing work, outside the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is something that we are in bondage to. Romans 6.12, Therefore, do not let sin reign or rule in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. In verse 17, But God be thanked, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. 
And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 21, he asked, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and to the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The power that was at work in the world, that was at work in, in what would be called Rome, was, was a power that they had been freed from because of what Christ had accomplished for them. And they were freed to what? They were freed to holiness. And so what's the fruit of holiness that Paul wants to talk about? Well, if you go on in verse 2, back in Romans 12, he says that you may prove or may, t- may test to discern or discover what is good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God. The obligation of the gospel is also an empowerment in the gospel. It allows you to go to work to figure out what you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to be and to see that in yourself. This is where wisdom really is found. In knowing what God has called you to be. He spells that out in fine detail. Look at verse 3. He says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think how? Soberly. As God has dealt each one a measure of faith. The beginning of having a rightly ordered love is to, is to have and begin with a rightly ordered faith. That rightly ordered faith puts you in perspective and it begins with you thinking less of yourself. Which is a really hard thing to do. You wake up thinking about you, but Paul says, no, this is not our way. We have, to be, we have to begin by thinking less of ourselves, less of our place in the world, less of the priority that we want to give to ourselves. He goes on, he further clarifies in verses 4 to 8. He, he, he reorients priorities by talking about your connection to the body of Christ. And he, he says there, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. We are connected And then he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. He goes on, he talks about prophecy and ministry and teaching and exhorting and giving and leading and mercy. And and these are all things that, that are works that the Spirit does in us. But the unfortunate thing about this list and other lists like this in Scripture is that the way evangelicals typically approach this is it's sort of... Something done for, for their self-esteem. Psychologically, they're just trying to figure out who they are. And they want to know their gifts so they can establish their identity. And they miss the point of what Paul is saying. Is that it's not about you knowing what your gift is. It's about you thinking less about yourself and using yourself for the benefit of others. Let us use them. That gift that emerged is not for your benefit, not for knowing about yourself. It's for your ability to serve other people. So Paul is saying in that passage, think less of yourself, think more of others, think of yourself as existing for the benefit of others, that complete and total sacrifice. He goes on in verse, uh, verse 9 of chapter 12, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. And he gives you all sorts of really helpful instructions that, that are worthy of meditation on and how we would manifest love in particular ways, in particular situations, in and out of the body of Christ. And if you jump down to verse 17, he says there, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 
And then he says, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And what, what he's teaching there is the same thing he's going to teach over in just a few verses, and I'll, and I'll get to that in chapter 13. He's teaching about the love of neighbor. He says that you are surrounded by a world of neighbors, all kinds of neighbors. You have your, your nearest neighbor in your family. You have the, the neighbors that, that live on your street. You have the neighbors that belong to your church. You have the neighbors that are those people that you have never met before and come across their path that are known as strangers. And you have those neighbors that you don't like and have every reason not to like that you call enemies. All of those really can come under that category of of neighbor. And Paul, as he goes on, if you look over in chapter 13, verses 8 through 9, he tells us again what is a foundational teaching. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Do you remember the confession of faith that you, you recited just a, a few moments ago? Looking at the larger catechism, its exposition of the law, and what does it point us back to? We understand what is in both tables of the law. It's telling us the ways in which we're called to love God and love our neighbor. Paul explains, he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not, shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet if there is any other commandment. All are summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The same thing he's going to say in Galatians 5.14. The same thing James is going to say in James 2.8. The same thing that you heard in the Old Testament reading from Leviticus 19 verse 18. The same thing that we were taught by the Lord Jesus. Turn back in your New Testament to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 34, Jesus is going to teach us and explain the same thing. We understand where the Apostle Paul gets his teaching. As we read in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, an expert in the law, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments, and all the law and the prophets. If you can hang all the law and prophets on something, which is basically all of your Old Testament, do you think that might be worth memorizing? If this scripture is not in your heart, if you have not repeated this to yourself a multitude of times, it is one of the most useful scriptures that you will ever come across because of what a wonderful and comprehensive summary it is of something that is so vitally important, the manifestation of the Christian life and love. And it's clear that you want to honor your father and mother, not murder, not take another man's wife, not steal, not lie, not covet. This is essentially to say this is to love someone is that we don't do those evils. And we do the contrasting goods for them. Turn back a few chapters to another passage in which Christ will speak to this. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, Jesus is entering into the final phase of his his ministry, going into Judea. In this case, there is a rich young man who comes to him. We read in verse 16, his exchange. It says, now behold, one came to him, Matthew 19, 16. And said to him, good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. 
But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus is telling the man that you, if you want to have eternal life, you need to keep the law, the whole law. And the whole law can be summarized in this respect, that you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And think about the, the continued response. He says, hey, you know what? I'm actually, I've had a lifetime run of keeping the law. I am, I've done really well here. I, I don't really know many people who have done as good a job as I have. I'm feeling pretty good about your answer, Jesus. Thank you for confirming what I already knew. But Jesus goes on to expose that. And he asked him to do something that would manifest whether or not he actually understood the command to love your neighbor as yourself. What does he ask him to do? He tells him, you need to hurt yourself. You need to sell everything you own. That's going to be incredibly painful for a man like this who had great possessions. What for? Not only does he have to sell all these possessions that he has, but he has to sell them and to give them away to the poor. So it's not going to benefit him. It's going to benefit someone else. And what, of course, does he know about the poor? Well, they're poor because they deserve to be poor. Not like me, who, who righteously and rightly came into the possessions I own because of my good behavior. I have earned what I have. I'm very good at what I do. People respect me, and it's rewarded. And I have the things I have. They belong to me. There's no happy ending to that. Whenever this man is confronted with the, the demands of discipleship, what Jesus would call him to, he would have to re-understand himself. He understands it comes at too much of a cost. He could not live sacrificially. He could not present his body as a total sacrifice to the Lord. He could not benefit someone else. There was truly no love for his neighbor. He had missed all of the law. Jesus shows us that we are incapable of law keeping. But it doesn't excuse us from seeing the law the way Jesus would have us understand it. That it is a call to sacrificially give ourselves to the benefit of other people. One more story that we would look to from Jesus that's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I don't need to go into all the details because Pastor Robbins preached this just a few months ago, but it is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Once again, there's a lawyer standing up to put Jesus to the test. This could very well be the same episode, just recording different aspects as it is in Luke's gospel. And he deals through the same issues but at the end of it, he comes to ask the question, he says, well, then who is my neighbor, if I want to get this right? And to which Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there are three lessons that you take away from that. The Samaritan, the Samaritan is, is teaching you that compassion, that love, that sacrificial love isn't ethnic. And it also doesn't require deserving. The man that he found on the side of the road was, was worthy of no particular honor. He knows nothing about the moral character of this person. He knows nothing about how he found the, the, himself there. He could have been a drunk for all he knew. They got beaten up as he deserved to be by himself. 
Conversely, the priests and the Levites, they teach us that religiosity doesn't excuse you. That you might be very religious, a priest, you might be very service-oriented as a Levite, but that does not excuse you from loving your neighbor. You don't get a pass because you have a religious service, because you are covenantal. In terms of the injured man, you learn that help is help, that you'll take it wherever you can get it from. This man, if he were, in fact, a Jew, was being helped by someone who was very much his enemy, but his enemy proved not to be an enemy, but someone who loved him as a brother. We're called to love, we're called to love whoever and however and wherever in ways that are difficult for us and painful for us. So we come to the point of asking, how do you love your neighbor? How, do, how would we apply this? And I want to look at a few areas. Again, Jesus teaches us, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I've said many times that this is not an express command for you to love yourself. The, the, the grammar doesn't support that. There's not an imperative in that part of the sentence structure. At the same time, There is something to understand about that that we don't reflect on enough. And I have to say I was humbled by Augustine over the past several months and reading several things of his and and seeing the way that he addresses this. And it becomes a question of what way, in what way do you love yourself? Do you love yourself immediately or ultimately? And that's how he's going to teach us how to evaluate that. For Augustine, when he thinks about self-love, he sees an actually a positive sense there in which there is a well-ordered love of self, which is hard to do. It's hard for me to imagine. I know the disordered loves that I have, and you probably know the disordered loves that you have toward yourself. But there's something that is logical, that is reasonable, that is rational, as Paul would tell us about giving ourselves sacrificially. And what what Augustine is saying is that the safest and most fruitful and longest and best lasting way in which you can ever be rewarded for anything is in the love of God. And so the person who truly pursues the love of God is in fact loving himself because there is nothing better he can do for his own soul than to love God. When you love God, you are loving yourself. You are doing the highest good that you can ever do for you. Augustine clarifies, he says, The mind self-love is true for its own good only when grounded on the love of God. When you get this right, when you love God the right way, then then you are, in fact, loving yourself. When you love God in Christ. That's so contra all those loves for things that we have in the world that are so temporary, so fleeting, and so selfish. The kind of things that we fall in love with, this is a different kind of love. It says, no, I want the very best thing for me, and the very best thing for me is Christ. And what he does with that and what he says with that is that it opens the doors for other possibilities. It allows you to love others. The, the, the more, in fact, that you love God, you are, in fact, loving yourself. And the more you understand what, what it is to rightly love yourself as in for what God wants for you, the more you're going to love others. Augustine says, if you love the head, you love the members. If you do not love the members, neither do you love the head. The Apostle John would say it this way in 1 John 4.20. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Loving 
others becomes a manifestation of a rightly ordered love for self because the very best thing that you can do for your soul is the thing that you want for the soul of your neighbor. I want him to have what I have. I want him to have Christ. And of course, it doesn't stop there. It actually becomes evangelistic. And I think there's something profound about this. To go a step further, it's not only those who are united by faith to the same Lord Jesus that, are called to love, that you're called to love, but it's your enemies as well. To love our enemies, to love them to the end with the goal that they might become our brothers. You understand what you have in Christ. You understand how you have, you have found this greatest good by coming to Christ and fleeing to Christ and leaning on Christ and trusting wholly and totally on Christ for everything that is right and good about your life and about your ultimate future and destiny. And you look at your enemy and you see that lack in them. And you say, I want them to have what I have. And so you love them as you love yourself. You point them to Christ. One commentator put it this way. He says, proper or ultimate self-love leads the believer away from self-concern to a concern for God that then manifests itself in a concern for another's well-being. The, Christ who is the Christian who is motivated by love longs to see his cruelest enemies become his dearest spiritual confidants. Instead of envying the wealth or fame of his antagonist, the man who knows biblical self-love will pray and work for his foe's salvation. Augustine also writes, You love him not what he is, but what you would have him be. Thus, when you love your enemy, you love your brother. It's a hard thing to do, but when you look at you and you think, What do I want for me? What's the best thing that I have? I want that for this person that is the most difficult person in my life. And that might be a neighbor next door who's caused you an untold amount of grief. It might be someone that you come to church that, that, that is difficult to see and it's hard to be in the same room them, with them. It might be a member of your family, more immediate or more, or more distant. But you know those people, they're out there for you. Those people that, that, that cause you so much grief. But the more you know your own soul and your, what your own soul needs, the more that you are able to want for them that very best thing. Of course, this is what we hear elsewhere from the Apostle Paul when he writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that love suffers long, is kind, love does not envy, it does not parade itself, is not puffed up, it's not about itself, it doesn't behave rudely because it considers those around, not seeking its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, and does not rejoice in iniquity, rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. True love forces us to let go of retribution and hoping that evils befall someone else or, or wanting evils to turn out to be true. There's no delight when you hear the news story break of this awful thing that's happened because of how unloving that is. Because you're not loving your enemy when we're rejoicing over him. You would love to see him be conquered by Christ. Again, Jesus reminds us, Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There is risk involved in loving your neighbor. 
There's risk involved in loving your enemy. It's dangerous. It's painful. Think about the Samaritan, what he had to go through. The, 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 the Samaritan, whenever he, he comes to this man alongside the road, he, he sees someone, that he, he knows not why he is there. It could be a trap. Plenty of people have been lured in by similar scenarios. Someone shows themselves to be in need and turns out that there's a, there's a group of, of men lurking around the corner who are going to jump on you when you come around. It forced him to take time out of his journey. It's about eight hours to walk over 15 miles of rocky terrain to get from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was not an easy journey. Think how hard that becomes whenever you take a wounded man. He bandages his wounds and he doesn't have a first aid kit to pull out of his, his donkey and, and, and whip out and begin to apply to him. This is, means ripping apart clothes, giving up wine and oil that were his store. Perhaps he was even going to trade. It was going to be very expensive he poured those things out for this man's good. And then he sets the man on his own animal. The burden that, that might have been born, he has to carry himself. His animal has to be worn out carrying this particular load. And then he takes the man to an inn. He purchases care for him, offers money for him, and even commits to continue to pay for his good. It was deeply and critically expensive, and he still knows nothing about this man who... Belkamps would seem to be unconscious. He's doing it just out of love because he's a neighbor and he is serving and doing this person good. It's not easy. It's painful. It's demanding. It requires much of us. But it is that to which we are called. Paul says, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, rational obligation, your service. It's different from the world. It requires transforming and renewing of your mind. You have to be different, but in becoming different and doing this thing, loving foolishly in this way, you glorify your Father in heaven and you honor the command of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we come this morning confessing the weakness and the pathetic nature of our love for others. We do not sacrifice well for you or for the body of Christ, for those who live near next door to us, for those we work with, for those that we are antagonized by. We pray, Father, that by your Spirit's work that you would work grace in our heart to know that we have been loved and to love as we've been loved, to put off ourselves and put on more of our Savior Jesus Christ, that we would give and give and give to meet the needs of those around us, that you might be glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name.